0: Grandstand cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 370. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Yes! The final word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon coming to you from Christchurch after Australia I have wrapped up the Trans Tasman Trophy 2 0. And Jeff Lemon. Australia are top of the world.
1: King of the world. Steve Smith is standing on the prow of the Titanic with his arms aloft. And David Warner is standing behind him, arms wrapped around his chest protectively. Nothing could go wrong.
0: Nothing could go wrong. It's very easy to take the mick when it comes to this particular ranking system. It's based over four years, not four months. There's many countries who have held the mantle in recent times. It's easy to belittle it. But they can only beat the opposition in front of them. And they have pounded... The sixth-ranked team, New Zealand, and the eighth-ranked team, the West Indies, this summer, and they really haven't put a foot wrong since England. So, whilst there's a lot of things you can talk to which invalidates the achievement broadly speaking, they've done pretty well this summer.
1: The funny thing is that that nobody really seems to understand how the thing works. I mean, we don't get it. You know, we work in, in cricket media and we don't understand how it works. That that whole four-year thing. You know, any time a team goes top, people look at what they've done in the last six months and say, oh, they don't deserve it because of this or that. You know, it's taking the the Ashes whitewash into account. It's taking two Losing Ashes tours into account. Everything's in there. Um, everything's in that grab bag. So, you know, as far as what comes out of it, who knows? So this, the, the, uh, cr- international cricket is so up and down.
0: It reinforces why when the ICC decided to obliterate the proposed test championship in 2013, that was a really bad call because the knock-on effect has meant this system has been under more scrutiny. We had a – Pete Miller spoke about this at length in the Cricket Gate podcast recently. We've had 25 years where the top team in the world has been very clear, the West Indies, then Australia, then South Africa. It was very obvious who the top team was, but now that it's not – The scrutiny on this system is coming thick and fast. And I think that, you know, whilst again, whilst we we shouldn't, you know, diminish what's been achieved by this Australian side, a fledgling Australian side, a junior, inexperienced Australian side, it does seem bizarre that a team that got, you know, thrashed in England just eight months ago, whatever it was, can now be top of world cricket.
1: And was thrashed in England twice in the period in question. Um, And
0: thrashed against Pakistan and thrashed in India. And, you know, there's a multitude of sort of series yes, there away from home. But then
1: everyone's been thrashed away from home. You know, India's mm, been, been absolutely steamrolled in, uh, in England and, you know, lost f- fairly comfortably in Australia. Um, nobody goes to South Africa and wins except for Australia occasionally. <laughs> but in South Africa, always come over to Australia and, um, you know, beat the daylights out of the home side. So, you know, the, uh, I think it probably reflects the, accurately the state of world cricket, really, which is that there's no clear winner on top. Most teams are strong at home except for that inverse South Africa-Australia relationship.
0: And winning in New Zealand, meant that Australia needed to confront those demons, if you like, from England playing in conditions with seeming tracks. And that was the same in Christchurch. Winning in Christchurch over the last five days required um, that was the catalyst for becoming top of the world, the way the system was, was set up but they won the toss again, five times on the trot, Steve Smith has beat Brendan McCullum at the coin toss, meaning that Australia were never exposed to batting first in those conditions they got the best of the batting and the best of the bowling effectively in both of these tests and they certainly took advantage of that morning one, three for 32, New Zealand were with James Pattinson and Josh Hazelwood and Jackson Bird all bowling particularly well on that first morning and then Brendan McCullum happened, the Brendan McCullum intervention the two hours of cricket that i don't think it's possible we could ever forget, and we're absolutely privileged to have been to it, been out at the time. Yeah, it's one of those ones that you'll be able to
1: to cite in 30 or 40 years and say, well, you know, I was there that day. I was uh, standing on the hill down at about long off, and well, none of the sixes came that way because they all went over midwicket or over over the keeper point or over the keeper, <laughs> or there was one straight down the ground, I think, over the side screen. Mm. But um, you know, he doesn't really play the conventional lofted on drive and off drive, but he was playing those. Uh, McCullum shots, only McCullum shots. The charging cut shot and the charging pull shot. You know, who who else does that? The charging cover drive. I'm going to come three meters down and then cover drive a six. What an outrageous thing to do to any bowler.
0: Yeah, and the fact that he was premeditating every every delivery in that manner. He was coming two or three strides down the wicket. Then occasionally he was letting balls go or defending. Not many. Cricketers will, will decide to come forward three metres and go, oh, Actually, I'll just, I'll just wait on that one. I'll knock it on the head. But mccullum has got that skill set as well. He went from 82 to 102 in the space of four balls to bring up the tonne in 54 balls beating the world record previously held by Sir Vivian Richards from 1986 and Misbah Al Haq, of course, in 2014. So some of the, Australian... the. forgotten
1: man, the forgotten man of the record, century, fastest century uh, talk, poor old Misbah. I know. misbah what... Al Haq, what, what an innings that was against Australia.
0: No one wants to remember it. It was only a couple of years ago in the Emirates and I was thinking about this there will only be a handful of people who've witnessed both of those records the Mizbah record and the McCullum record given how few people were at the, the UAE for that series and most of them were playing for Australia people like Steve Smith and David Warner and Peter Siddle, they'll be amongst a very small handful of witnessed history, witnessed lightning strike twice, but when you see well, world
1: yeah, rec- imagine being in the team that conceded uh, both of the fastest world record centuries within a couple of years and Steve Smith was instrumental in the first one because it, of course it was his bowling that Misbah took about 26 runs mm. off and over from Steve Smith that really got him going um, and, and that's when Misbah realised that he was on for the record and
0: he went for it And then he got to face Mitchell Stark bowling some of the all-time greatest filth I should add as well, so He was was the beneficiary of some uh, favourable conditions. In in declaration batting, it's important to note, both Viv Richards and Misbah were batting in circumstances where they were trying to pile on a lead in the third innings, where Brendan McCullum was coming out at three for 32. On day one. On day one, on a track that was clearly favourable to the bowling side after being sent in in his final test match, like in his hometown. There's every, you know, for for all the reasons in the world, that shouldn't have worked out. But it, it miraculously did that 179 run stand with Corey Anderson was incredible. That was the quickest partnership ever for over 150. They went at 9.79 runs and over and it was the most miraculous hitting from Anderson as well and in innings that completely was in complete contrast to what we see him do later in a test and we'll come to that. But at the time Australia were in all sorts really. They had these two blokes going like the clappers. They'd sent New Zealand in. McCullum looked impregnable as far as uh, everything he touched turned to gold on the day. I feel
1: like he looked entirely impregnable. No, every he, ball but, he looked but, like he could get out. But he, he kept getting, getting away with it. This yeah. is the thing
0: right. He, he, was, he was chancing his hand and he was getting away with it and you know, on days like that, you wonder where the wicket's coming from. And they did very well, I thought. I decided did. to say a few Look, wickets to, 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 to finally stem the of runs.
1: Corey Anderson, it's not often you'll see a sheet anchor role played by a guy who makes 50 off 38 balls, but, <laughs> but he did. Six and a four in, I think, his first over when he was out there. Yep. When he, he started going after, um, was it Mitchell Marsh as well? You know, just couldn't help himself. But it, it's easy to go go in the slipstream of someone like McCullum going like that. I, I think the thing was that it wasn't, Supremely risky in that, you know, at three for 30, if they'd poked and prodded around, you know, maybe they would have ground out 200, 220 or something, um, but they would have got out. And McCullum knew that and he went, well, I might as well get out trying to take the game on as Get Out trying to defend. And in the end, they get the score all the way up to 370, um, thanks to some lower order contributions as well.
0: Yeah, I wanted to note on that, uh, BJ Watling played two really good hands in his innings. But in the first innings, especially batting with the tail, he pushed them from seven for 297 up to 370. And that was a huge difference. And as you say, Jeff, McCullum was very clear after the innings in pointing out that he wanted to bowl on day one one way or the other. So he didn't care that they'd, uh, they, they were all out as far as, you know, he was happy with the amount of runs they scored. He just wanted to get a chance to let his fast bowlers at Australia before stumps. And that occurred, and to be fair, they took a wicket. They got David Warner out. They would have liked two or three, but getting that first incision on, on, on night one put the game absolutely in the balance overnight. Like, it was, it was one of those classic day ones where both sides had the ascendancy. It was a remarkable cricket in between. Over 420 runs scored on the day, 11 wickets. It was just a remarkable day. But... The, the game was evenly poised, and that didn't last for long.
1: No, they, this has been the story of New Zealand v Australia over this whole summer, starting in Brisbane back in November and, and coming through to this tour, is that in in almost every test, there were points where New Zealand got a couple of wickets, were almost in, you know, and just weren't able to push on. And I think, you know, what we've seen is this settling of of Australia's batting Um And it's easy to look at it in retrospect and say that they may not have been facing the strongest bowling attacks, but they were bowling attacks that they were very worried about facing before uh, before this took place, even before the West Indies tour, we were talking up their bowling, um, and certainly, sure. certainly New Zealand's bowling attack was supposed to test Australia out. Now, Australia's batting order um, solidified and never let New Zealand's bowlers take advantage, take full advantage in any match that they played.
0: And, and that even occurred on morning of day two. They bowled really well. That was Bolt's best spell, I think, in the in the two Test matches we saw. He got the wicket of. Usman Kawaja, which came against the flow of play. But it was, it was the case that they finally, in, the, in Steve Smith and Joe Burns, they had to knuckle down, they had to get through to lunch and they had to find a way to, to, to you know survive in challenging conditions and they did so and that opened them up after lunch. After lunch the stroke play was considerably better Steve Smith found his gears. He spoke before the test match and before the one day series and before the first test about taking your time to get in in these conditions and that's what he does. I mean I read an article saying how loud he calls early on. He's you know that, that, that no run, no run. It's so defiant and to me it feels like it's a, a process he goes through in that first 30 or 40 balls of familiarising himself with the conditions to the extent to which he can then push on and feel comfortable in your stroke play and that's precisely what the two of them did through the afternoon session, particularly Burns I thought he was super impressive because he's got lesser repertoire than Steve Smith when Neil Wagner was running in bowling bounces at both of their heads, Steve, Quip, Steve Smith's hands are so quick, he's equipped to get around and, and hook them around the corner. I'm not so sure that Burns is, he was taking a more conservative approach at the very least and that, that's to me, that, that's what made his innings particularly important, it was gritty, it was hard and he, and he made it count and it's by far the best innings he's played for Australia. I,
1: I think he's. I think Joe Burns knows that he's been out on the pull shot quite a lot in various forms of cricket, um, you know, for quite a period of time. He, he knows that it's a bit of a weakness, um, and he knew that he just didn't want to give it away. He wanted to play the the classic opener's role and just stay in and stay in and let others bat around him. So his discipline, well, in both innings, you know, in the second innings as well, there was a, a sustained short ball attack from Wagner and Burns just kept going under it, going under it, going under it, and just waiting, you know, uh, using the theory that soon enough this guy's got to get tired and go off. Yeah, it might take him ten or twelve overs because Wagner just, you know, does have that incredible endurance, but eventually it's going to have to stop.
0: He finally got them both. In- the, uh, just as Stumps was nearing quarter of an hour before he picked up Burns and then Smith both on the pull shot as it happens they both weren't yeah, able by to by the
1: time you made 170 you you're allowed to that. have a pull shot
0: yeah 315 balls later you're entitled to do whatever you want as far as I'm concerned that that's the defining characteristic of an opening how many balls you face more than how many yep. runs you've made And uh, and but that again they, they had a, a, a small albeit deficit to knock off the following morning. So, again, New Zealand at that point have taken their four wickets. They've yep. got, you know, if they can run through Australia on morning three, they, they are absolutely back in this test match. But what sure. happens, same old, same old. You, same you old.
1: nick off, yeah, you can nick off Voges. You've got Mitch Marsh in dodgy form. Then absolutely. you've got a keeper and some bowlers. Okay. Um, and yeah. Nathan
0: Lyon, the night watchman, and that's always a thing when you put a night watchman in. The risk is they go out first ball on the next morning and you've got a bit of a, mem- you know, dare I say, yeah. momentum problem that you've already had an incision to begin the day and that, that was the setup. up with Voges and Lyon went out there on morning three well, but again we talk about it all the time big moment comes New Zealand need to step up they can't. Nathan Lyon
1: and, yeah. looked better than Mitchell Marsh to mm. be honest I mean I'm not even being facetious there he actually played really well on that um that following morning and it was almost a case where you went has Mitch Marsh been the night watchman for Nathan Lyon all this time <laughs> and this is the first time that Lyon's come out in his natural place up the order he was covered driving he made 33 looked, uh, looked immaculate.
0: You know I'm long on the record as team Marsh I'm not going to get stuck into marsh but i do agree that Lyon looked particularly fluent on that third morning but it was more to me about how new zealand just couldn't break through it wasn't particularly easy batting they they, they did it tough yeah. at different periods but there was one time when brendan mccullum and kane williamson were operating in tandem with a ball that was 55 overs old and you thought gee they're in a bit of strife here in new zealand but yeah. they did somehow find a breakthrough williamson picked up line which which started things for them they did get through australia after lunch and it was the composer Neil Wagner, who who did it. And, and, and after that spell he bowled the previous day, that back-breaking spell, he had to come back and back up with a 12-over stint on morning three, either side of lunch, I think it was. I mean, that doesn't happen in modern cricket. Fast bowlers don't get asked to bowl 12 overs on the spin, let alone when they're bowling bounces every other delivery. He well and truly earned his bag of six wickets.
1: Well, he did. And, and there was a, a beautiful little um, the pitch map, if you if you just defined it to show his wickets, there were six of them and they were all... at at the um, animated batsman's head. Uh, It was an incredibly accurate cluster of of six wickets.
0: This is The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. So having a 135 deficit to knock off New Zealand went out to bat again, and it was the same old story. I'm sorry, but Martin Guptill was the the culprit on this occasion. Another player who has a record against Australia and against other top five nations, which is just deplorable, but plunders runs against countries which aren't so proficient at test cricket. And there he goes, caught third over behind the wicket. And again, Martin Guptill's a very talented cricketer who I have a lot of time for as a batsman. but. I feel as though he's got a mental hurdle which has been exposed yet again in this test match.
1: Well, he's got a, you know, a, a coloured clothes, um, change of identity, Superman style, he gets in the phone box and puts a different kit on and suddenly he can do things and he's unrecognisable, um, but in his ordinary mild-mannered civilian life in the whites, <laughs> uh, look, he's played, he's had 18 test innings against Australia, That's not a short career. Um, aver- um, averages 16. Yeah, made one. Averages
0: 16. One half century. Yeah, 58 is his
1: highest score against Australia. That's his only really decent score. He's made 140 um, in Wellington and then absolutely bugger all.
0: Yeah, by the time this podcast has published the uh, the Mike Hesson press conference, that was embargoed yesterday, he's backed in Guptall to continue as the opening batsman for New Zealand which to me is just astonishing. That When you've got a side that is now going to have to reinvent itself again and need to blood some younger players, the yeah. fact that he's just straight up backed in Guptall, said no, he's my opening batsman, He'll, he's good to go, is bewildering.
1: It, it is bewildering and, and you look at his record against any of the decent sides against South Africa, I think the average is 18 um, against India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, it's the average is in the low 20s. You know, the only nations, he's made runs against uh, Bangladesh, average of 235 from memory, um, and Zimbabwe and the West Indies, he's got a, a decent record against, but not the greatest challenge in world cricket.
0: And disappointing for other reasons was Tom Latham, we both like Tom Latham we're in on Tom Latham, he's a beautiful player he's fluent, he's composed at the crease he's got off drives to die for, yet gets to 39, gets himself out strangled down the leg side, that word again, strangled, gets caught down the leg side, but to me it was more illustrative of the fact that this is this is a guy who's got a problem when he gets into the 30s and 40s that he can't Push on. Or,
1: or that maybe he just runs out of steam.
0: Concentration. My assumption must be that it isn't about technique, he's no. clearly got the skills. It must be a he runs out of concentration and, and he throws it away, and this is another example of that.
1: Yeah, and, and his run against Australia across 10 test innings in the last few, last few months, I think that eight of those scores have been 30 plus. Um, he's made, he's got to 50 once, and that was his highest score of 50 on the dot. He just can't go on from there. His classic innings his 37, beautiful cover drives, uh, a few tucks off the pads,
0: strong there, and then he's out. Which isn't to diminish the bowling of James Pattinson, who was fiery that afternoon. I love James Pattinson when he comes in charging. He's so dangerous and scary, and he was doing the job there in the second dig. They got Brendan McCullum in before stumps. He was in there in classic Brendan McCullum fashion. He hit a six over deep backwards square leg. Next ball slog, court, gone. New Zealand's hopes overnight looked to be gone with that. So it was a lovely touch, of course, the Guards of Honour that he received, shaking uh-huh. hands with the Australian skipper and the players as he walked off. It was a really beautiful sight. There was a lot of emotion in the air when the, they were watching the local boy go around. But it ultimately... Um, they actually needed him to play a different kind of innings in the second in the second dig, and, and, and he and he, and he didn't. We wasn't yeah, able to back would, it up. Yeah, but you would never have had the
1: first innings if he played a different way. True no, you can't have both. Yeah, you, that's right. Yep. They, those were the two sides of the coin, and the coin has not landed for him this summer, as we've discussed. But, you know, that's what you get. He charged, he pulled Hazelwood, smacked him for six, mm. uh, charged him again, pulled him. And it was an absolute screamer of a catch by David Warner. It was, yeah. At short mid-wicket, who got airborne and, and hauled it in. It was four, it should have been four. Um, you know, Warner caught it. OK, so the luck goes against you that time. He made 25 in the second and 140 in the first.
0: I thought they'd fold on day four. My assumption was that we were walking into a four-day test match. But Corey Anderson, uh, c- combining with Kane Williamson, said yeah. no to that. And And, I mean... We could talk about Kane Williamson's 97, and we should. It, it, it was de- defined by the amount of edges that didn't go to slip, the soft hands, mm-hmm. the, the technique that he applies when you he's knew out exactly of form.
1: Exactly how to handle that bowling. He And now, I, I really want to emphasise this, because sometimes we get distracted and look at the batting too much. Josh Hazelwood and James Pattinson both on that, uh, that morning session of the fourth day were incredible. Outstanding. They were mm. swinging it away from the bat. They were reversing it into the pads. They were cutting it off the pitch. And how... Kane Williamson and Corey Anderson got through an entire session without a dismissal between them. Anderson was dropped at gully by Marsh. But it, it, it defied belief that to face that bowling that good and not get out was incredible on both the batting and the bowling part.
0: Yeah, there was so much going on. It was the most absorbing session of Test cricket that I've seen this summer. And it's funny to say that when no wickets were taken. But yeah, the drop catch, short leg, I guess that half chance from Joe Burns, all those inside edges, yeah. the leg before wicket that was um, given out against Williamson, referred and overturned. And, there was, and then ultimately a DRS decision... On on the cusp of the lunch break, which ended up costing Steve Smith 30% of his match payment and Josh Hazelwood 15% of his match payment, when they decided to, I don't know, it was it was it's kind of nonsense. I think the argument or the argument they've put is that they wanted to see real-time snicker used in an LBW decision after the hotspot had concluded that it was already an edge, yep. and they were and they were asking why it hadn't been used. But that to me yes, shows but that they were
1: asking with a lot of expletives and and sort of angry faces and all the rest of it.
0: But they were also wrong. The important, yep. the important point here is, according to the guidelines, which we've now learnt about, and I, sure. I assume Steve Smith has too, once Hotspot has made its ruling... You do not go to sticker yes, if Which is where Nigel
1: Long went so wrong in Adelaide because there was, you know, the hotspot uh, was was already telling him what needed to be done, and then he went on to look at other replays. Yeah. Um, so that technology. isn't to
0: say that, that. And By the way, I'm not defending the process. Like there's there's many chinks in sure. that armor, but I think that looking at the, the the way in which it was handled, the swearing about the third umpire, the questioning the, 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 the who the third umpire was in aggressive terms, that that was that wasn't that wasn't ideal. And Smith has cop that on the chin. He said that they've both accepted their punishment. Smith says it wasn't good enough. So I think we can. Probably yeah. probably draw a line under that, but it was one it was illustrative of just how well they had bowled in that session and how much frustration had bowled over and not having taken a wicket let 's talk about Corey Anderson though. we mentioned how well he played in the first dig, mm-hmm. you know the sheet anchor after making seventy six and sixty two balls um, The second innings he genuinely was refusing to go out forty he made and he faced one hundred and forty five balls at the crease, only four boundaries out of his contribution it says what he has another gear a much lower gear and to me that was more impressive than the first innings it was it was showing that he can come in and do Mm. both roles number six in a test side you often need to be coming in at four for not many and stopping and consolidating and i think most people assume Corey anderson's a white ball slogger given that he has a 36 ball one day hundred but that was super impressive for mine and and to bat with Kane williamson the way he did Survive that fantastic Australian bowling, to me, will be the sort of thing that can make him in the long run.
1: Yeah, he's, he's like a, a four-wheel drive trip up a particularly steep rocky slope, you know, very low gear and extremely uncomfortable for everybody concerned. Um, <laughs> he didn't look happy at any point in his innings. He didn't look like he was enjoying it. He didn't really look in control. You know, he was leaving his leaving was good, but he might have two good leaves in an over um, and then he'd prod at one and get beaten and then he'd sort of play a, you know, another one that he shouldn't and manage to defend it away. Now, he survived. He had some fortune, you know, and he did go for a few wide balls once in a while, like that edge that he skewed off to Gully that got dropped. So he had some fortune, but it's as you say, he's, he's just been in a dire rut of form um, against Australia through the one days and then through the first test match, he's looked appalling every time. So for him to be able to come out and, and have a personal success like that, and say, well, I can do this, um, as you say, could make a big difference.
0: So Australia take the important wickets of Anderson and Williamson after the lunch break. Bird finally was the word. He took wickets with the old ball, then the new ball picked up Tim Southie. They were in all sorts. And Jackson Bird, I mean, hey, like we, he, he was frazzled. I described him in, in my piece last night in Wellington. And he finally... Found his uh, groove in the last possible opportunity because he wasn't going to get another spell. That, that this was—if he didn't take wickets there—that might have been the end of Jackson Bird's Test career. But instead, five-wicket haul, you know, sliding doors, all the rest. Who knows what that'll mean for him now? I think it's instructive
1: that um, we we are too impatient with Test cricketers. We do expect them to drop in and just perform at the the top level straight away. Whereas, you know, it probably takes a couple of matches to to let the nerves go away and to and to start to feel a little bit comfortable and to feel like I'm. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to be dropped immediately if I don't take eight wickets in this first innings that I'm bowling. You know, that's you could tell in Wellington that's what he felt he had to do. He was supposed to destroy New Zealand, and of course he got none for 50 off 10 overs. And uh, in this Test match, it was instructive how quickly Steve Smith dragged him almost every time. Now mm. I went through all of his spells in a you know a piece on Western India, and, and it was it was kind of amazing that he'd come on, he'd bowl two overs, he'd go for a couple of boundaries, and Smith would drag him off and put Marsh on or put Lyon on, and this happened almost every time. Um, Even after, he takes three wickets in 10 balls, I think, um, when he gets rid of Anderson and Williamson and then Tim Southey who slogged 48 in you know, Wellington can be dangerous. Um, three wickets and ten balls. Then he goes for a couple of boundaries in his next over and Smith pulls him off again.
0: Yeah, he did say after the innings in his press conference that he disappointed with his consistency on this tour and he felt that he started spells poorly. So, But at least he has that bag of wickets to draw on and a, you know, a YouTube highlights reel to have a look at and, and feel good because he knows he can do it. He knows he can move the ball. That ball to get Williamson um, did carve back a long way and did click the inside edge on the way through. And you can't do that unless you're... a a master exponent of your craft. You don't pick up Kane Williamson um, unless you're a, a, you know, a bowler with serious talent. The
1: thing is, that, I mean, people go, oh, well, he just took tail enders, so it doesn't count. I mean, these are the same tail enders that Australia's been unable to dismiss um, mm. in, in recent times. Now, Southie and Bolt between them in Wellington probably added about 80 runs. Um, put that on New Zealand's total and see what a difference that makes. And then Matt Henry, who, you know, made 60-odd, Bird didn't bowl to him. Um, w- through his entire 66, innings of 66, Bird did not bowl to him until the last two balls of Henry's innings and Bird got him out second ball he bowled.
0: That's a, I did not know that. That's a, that's a remarkable fact. Matt Henry's innings, which we, we won't dwell too much on because, you know, limited time in the, in the works, but 66 are the most uh, unorthodox runs you'll see as far as his defence is concerned, but can, can swing hard. And when he swings hard over long off in particular, he's a threatening player. And he put on 121 with BJ Watling and they ended up having Australia in a situation where they were chasing 201 one for victory and I think it's children of the 90s we see Australia chasing a hundred and something or low 200s in in a in a four things chase and we immediately tense up we're like hang on this is the time that Australia lose. And you see Twitter, of course, everyone Goes, Oh, you know, remember Sydney in 94 yeah. and remember the Oval in 97 and remember Melbourne in Boxing Day yeah. Test 98, 99. Yeah, actually,
1: 99. Damien Martin's not playing anymore. It's okay, yeah, you know, yeah. settle down.
0: So, we, But we all go through that process. Jesse Hogan did some did some, did some Stato work on this, the best uh, cricket Stato going around. Only 12 of 100, 124 times uh, Australia have chased a total of 201 or fewer they have lost. So you could feel fairly confident uh, that they would do it, go out and do it well. But still, there's that psychological pressure in the fourth innings that every team feels But New Zealand again, big moment, 201 to defend, Trent Bolt, Tim Southey, they both bowled as poorly as they bowled at any stage during the summer. And that is saying something. The time they were needed most was the time when they just let Australia get off to an absolute flyer through Warner and Burns. And really, within four innings, I think the chase was pretty much done. So Sting had completely gone out of the game. And that's on account of how poorly they bowled.
1: Yeah, I mean, you never really felt that uh, New Zealand were in the game in that final innings. And it's interesting how it goes. If if a team does it easily, you say, oh, well, it must have been a stroll and it must have been simple out there. But a couple of wickets go down early. It's a completely different game. Um, all of that pressure comes in. But Burns just went, no, I'm not going to get out. Um, And then when Smith came in later, he just applied the acceleration um, on day five to to get them home.
0: Yeah, ultimately day five ended up being a dot. Usman Khawaja had a ball go between keeper and slip in the first over. Had that been taken, maybe we were talking about a collapse or something like that. That might have been the catalyst. But in reality, when Usman Khawaja did go, all it did was provide Steve Smith with a platform to play some outrageous shots. Take his test batting average above 60 now. He and Adam Voges now have averages above 60. They're two of only six men in the history of the game with more than 20 innings to have that mark, and they play for Australia right now, which just seems unbelievable, really, given the, where Australia was six months ago. It
1: does, and then you've got Kawaja out there. Now, in the 50 partnership between Kawaja and Burns, when that came up, Burns had made four of those runs, <laughs> and Kawaja made uh, most of the rest <laughs> with a few extras in there.
0: It, it, it looks so unlikely when, when Kawaja finally went caught behind, or caught in the slips when Tim Southey was bowling. That was I was, on, I was on air calling at the time. I, I, can, I can't believe I said this sentence. Usman was is out and Tim Southy is bowling. So, yeah. <laughs> given, given the, the, relative, uh, the relative strength of those two in, the, yeah. in recent times. So, Australia do it in a doddle. Steve,
1: uh, Steve Nift- Smith... Nift- 50 little not out half century for Smith to put his average above 60, career yeah. average above 60. Now he he started terribly in Tests. You think about it, his first 11 Tests, he averaged 29. You know he he looked, he was a kind of joke batsman at that point. Um, in the 30 Tests since, he's averaging 75 across those 30.
0: Yeah, I, the one I like, my favourite is that uh, before the two years ago to the day, his average was 37.6, and then his average went through 60. He averaged 75 as you say in that period of time between his his uh, his his maiden breakthrough hundred. And the, and the innings he played the other day, which to me is just extraordinary. He's averaging now a century almost in every other test he's played since his yeah. first 100, which but is just that run, crazy.
1: Across that run, 30 tests, 1,400s. So basically, yeah, since, every he, other game. since he's learned how to make 100s. It's, it's, it's a remarkable, ludicrous statistic.
0: Yeah, like, if you, you know, obviously you have to lop off the front of his career and that's fairly selective, but that's getting towards... Well, that that's well, even if you
1: don't, it's still 2.9 tests per century, which is the fourth, what, fourth second, quickest, yeah, uh, fourth, fourth, ever, isn't th- it? Third highest, third I mean, behind, uh, behind Bradman. Bradman, Walcott, Headley. Yep.
0: It, 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 no, well, Headley,
1: he's, he's level with Headley oh, and, okay. and uh, um, behind Walcott.
0: In it, no matter how you cut it, Steve Smith's numbers are just extraordinary. It makes statisticians and nerds like Jeff and I very happy. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand the end of the Australasian summer, Australia top of the world, the final word podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, to end the summer, what is your highlight? When you go through everything we've seen in red ball cricket through the summer, starting in Brisbane and concluding in Christchurch, what's the thing you're going to look back on and remember from, from summer 1516?
1: 16? Uh, plenty of potentials. You know, Brendan McCollum's century, we've talked about uh, Voges pretending that he was Don Bradman and, and still lurking in the Bradman vicinity. Who knows what he's going to do next? Um, for me, I reckon it was just watching a fluorescent pink ball flying into the stands at square leg from Tim South's bat and a gentleman in the crowd taking a catch clean as a whistle after all that talk. Talk about how a fielder square of the wicket wouldn't be able to pick up the pink ball at dusk.
0: The, the, the one, yeah, indeed, that's right. What, what an amazing, we talked about that. Old oh, mate a with a beer deal. in one hand, is like, yep, yep. pluck it, no, no worries. Dra- no drama, square they will get from here, mate. Plop no it back, there you go, fellas. <laughs> from, a, from a cricket perspective, the most impressive thing I've seen is Australia's fast bowling depth. Now, like they, they, they did not have anyone playing in Christchurch who played at the Oval back in August, and they've churned through so many fast bowlers, and no one's let them down. They've barely had a bad spell Um, or a bad session through the course of the summer. And that is what you build on. You play to your strengths and you build from your strengths and you build up. And this was always going to be Australia's competitive advantage with that that, that store of fast bowlers. But the fact that they've all kind of delivered, including Peter Siddle being effectively reborn um, after he was, as we talked about in great length last week, that to me is is the highlight of the cricket summer. And of course, to me, the silly one or the more enjoyable one was when the 17-minute sight screen delay in Perth, which... I mean, we had the great fortune on the final word of speaking to Sonny Munn, the operator afterwards, and he was a great talent and great sport and all the rest. But it was yeah. just one of those things be- in cricket, you know, one of the beautiful things about cricket.
1: Beautifully described uh, as by somebody as the honey badger of ground stuff.
0: Yeah, I think that was Russell Jackson who said that, and he was he was he was right on the money. He was a brilliant guy. New Zealand's analysis now for them, I think we've we've kind of said it all. But after playing five tests against them, they should be bitterly disappointed at losing four 0 Brendan McCullum finishes his career with. You know, an imposing record as skipper as far as what he's been able to do and turn this team around by way of perception. But their ranking remains the same. And you, you have to wonder now how big a challenge Kane Williamson will have in moulding this team in his own image and whether he can retain that free spirit, free-flowing, positive, whatever you want to call it, cricket that McCullum has instilled in this side, how Williamson will go.
1: Yes, and particularly as a a relatively um, sort of quiet, introverted character on the field, how he's going to be able to carry that across. And I guess for Australia, it's on to bigger and different challenges. They've got to try to do something in the World T20, a format in which they've generally been lacklustre at international level, and then they start their subcontinental experience, first the Sri Lanka tour in July and August, and then looking ahead to India next March.
0: That will be the real test for this Australian side. They're ranked number one, but ultimately it'll be how they perform in the subcontinent in the winter and then next autumn, which will dictate how that side will be remembered. This is our season finale. Jeff, obviously, at the end of the summer, we're going to put this to queue in the rack for a while. We might try and do some stuff from India. Jeff, of course, will be covering the T20 World Cup and I'm sure I'll bob up somewhere later in the winter as well. Until then, thanks for listening in across the summer. Thanks to Jeff for being a wonderful co-host in his enterprise and thanks to the ABC for letting us do it. We'll speak to you soon.